and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. And over the next couple of weeks, dive into several stories of people that found themselves at the feet of Jesus and in, in, in moments of worship, and then maybe even people that were distracted from those moments and, and how to kind of move past that and just enjoy the idea of worshiping God and interacting with God. And if you did grow up in church, maybe you know that like what we just did, the singing part, a lot of times we call that the worship service, right, or the worship portion of the service. Sunday mornings, for a long time around here even, were called uh, our Sunday morning worship service, right? And then, you know, you got a bulletin sometimes way back in the day, and it would tell you the order of service, right? And it was all about a service. It was all about a time, a period of time when we would stop and we would kind of give honor to God. And really, that's what the idea of worship is all about. Worship is to express, when you worship something, it's to express appreciation for something's worth. Uh, It's to express, you know, your estimation of something's value, of of something's uh, value and contribution into your life. And so you can worship something, or of course, you can worship someone. And when you worship someone, it's to express appreciation for someone's worth. And it's interesting to me that you, you don't really get a choice. Humans don't really get a choice. We are worshipers by nature. Any, uh, of the ladies in the room back when you were in your teen years, have any posters of boy bands up on your wall? Can I get you to go ahead and raise your, none of y'all, there's one honest, two honest people in the room, that's it. Junior's raising his hand. Okay, (laughs) Junior had, which boy band was it, Junior? You want (laughs) to, all all of them, it was all of them. No, (laughs) Did not see that one coming. That's have no uh, place for that in my notes. We, we're all worshipers of different things. We just really are. Humans just naturally, we, we worship things. We want to be like someone, right? I mean, maybe, Junior, you can respond on this one. How many of you, when you were little boys, wanted to be like Mike? Who am I talking about with be like Mike? Michael Jordan, thank you, right? Michael Jordan. Of course, I was always the overweight Mexican kid. I could never jump, so I'm like, I'm never going to be like Mike. I just knew it wasn't going to happen, but just, you know, we always want to, like, worship someone, emulate someone. We, we like the, what they are and who they are, and we want to be like them, and humans have just been worshipers from the beginning of time. Like ancient civilizations, ancient tribes, ancient peoples, they, they looked up and they looked around them and, and they realized, you know, something made all of this. Like this is too spectacular, too amazing to have, have happened beyond, its, you know, by itself. And so they kind of attributed, attributed these things to what they would call the gods, right? There were many gods in all of these pluralistic societies and pagan societies. And, and ancient religions and world religions, even modern day religions, attribute those things and elements of life and nature and all of these, all of this that we enjoy and live within, we attribute that or they attributed that to the gods. And so they would have worship where they would acknowledge the gods and give thanks to the gods and do some type of service to the god and build temples and shrines to their gods. And they needed to worship the gods to keep the gods happy because in ancient times you needed the gods to survive. Because the gods controlled the rains and the gods controlled the crops and whether or not you had victory in battle and whether or not you had, he- whether or not you had health or whether or not your wife would, would be able to bear children or survive childbirth and all of these kinds of things. And, and so there was this issue always within ancient worship systems or ancient religions of 
Well, how do you get the gods to be happy with you? How do you get the gods to favor your family, maybe over other families? How do you get the gods to favor your tribe, maybe over other tribes, right? And, and people developed and kind of tied together worship with the idea of sacrifice. And so ancient worship kind of became this idea where you would sacrifice something in order to show your worship of something. You would sacrifice something to someone in, able to, in order to gain the attention or the favor of that someone, to get the God's attention. I want to get them to see that I'm giving up something valuable to me to get something even more valuable from them. And, and somehow they landed on the idea of spilling blood. Well, that's what the gods, wants. And so, gods want. And so we'll spill blood. And, you know, because the thing of ultimate value is life. Life couldn't be recreated. Life at, at a lot of times couldn't be resuscitated or brought back. So if I spill the blood of something that has the ultimate value, then it expresses to you how much I worship you, how much I value you, right? And so eventually that devolved into the whole idea of, of human sacrifice even in some religions. And they would sacrifice their enemies sometimes, or sometimes they would sacrifice people within their own tribe. And if they really wanted to get the God's attention, they might sacrifice a child because of that innocence and that preciousness. And, and all of it was kind of bound up in that. And they wanted to keep the gods happy, wanted to exchange value for greater value, wanted to get the gods to favor them more than the gods would favor other people. And essentially... Here's the thing about sacrifice and worship. Essentially, sacrifices in ancient worship were a bribe because the gods were holding all the card cards. The gods were holding the rain card. The gods were holding the famine card or the crop card or all of these things. The, 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 the gods held the cards of whether or not your wife survived childbirth. And so there was this guessing game of what do we need to do to appease the gods, to keep the gods happy, to get the gods to favor us, which is always tricky. But fortunately, for ancient people, there were people like me. Fortunately, for ancient people, there were people who knew the secrets to pleasing gods. They would call themselves priests. Or they would call themselves witch doctors or be called witch doctors. They would call themselves seekers or holy men, almost always men back then. Holy men would convince the tribal leaders, I know the mind, I know the hearts of the gods. Listen to me and I will get them to favor you. But then there was always this deal where what you needed to do to please the God somehow seemed to parallel what you needed to do to please the holy man, right? They kind of like had that inside track. And, and, and maybe some of you today, maybe some of your family, they, they don't trust preachers. You don't trust preachers on television maybe. You don't trust preachers that are in your past or, you know, people who are, you know, priests or people who say that they've been talking to God. It feels like maybe they're manipulating the text. Maybe they're telling you they have an inside track with God that you're not really sure that they have an inside track on, you know, and, and it feels like they're maybe manipulating the emotions of the people or kind of fixing the system because what they're asking for seems to benefit them just as much, if not more, than it benefits the God that you're trying to get the attention of, right? And people tell, you know, priests and holy men and, 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 and witch doctors and seekers and all of these types of people, they will, they will tell you that they know what you need to do to get God to be happy with you, to give you a favor, to give you blessing, to give you miracles, maybe even to give you healing. I, I heard one, I probably shouldn't say too much because I don't want anybody, like if you know somebody that you used to watch on TV, I don't want to offend anybody, but I heard one thing one time, it was like, you know, send in a certain amount of money and we'll send you one of the nails from the cross of Jesus. 
It's like at best, like maybe four people are getting in on that. Three, if you go by the traditional model, like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, this kind of stuff, what in the world is going on? Exchange money and I'll get the gods to give you favor. I'll get God to give you a miracle. And, and at the end of the day, it just always seemed to favor the people that were standing and holding the microphone. So we're going to take up an offering right now. And uh, No, I'm just, when you get outside, you'll find a new car. Uh, it's not going to happen. Don't, <laughs> I don't even have a new car. Uh, but this isn't new with you if you kind of have this problem. This isn't new with you if you kind of have this issue of mistrust. And, and unfortunately, sometimes in Christianity even, I mean, I'm a Christian, and so I kind of, you know, maybe pick on ourselves first that, you know, Christianity even has kind of gotten a reputation for being about money and being about offerings and giving and that, that kind of thing. But, you know, this isn't new with you if you kind of have a problem or kind of that mistrust with church and preachers and that kind of thing. There's always been sacred people throughout human history, always been sacred men and sacred sacred buildings with sacred texts, knowing sacred secrets, who can take offerings from the people to manipulate the favor of the gods. But there was one ancient people that we want to look at today. It's kind of we set this, this whole idea of worship up, and it was the ancient Jewish people. And their system of worship, it looked similar in some ways to the systems of worship of the pagan peoples around them. But actually, it was very, very different. It was similar that they even in, in one portion of their worship included animal sacrifice. But why they would sacrifice the animals was for very, very different reasons than the people that were around them. Their sacrifices of animals to their God, to the Jewish God, to the Creator God, was not them trying to bribe their God to gain any kind of favor. It was not them trying to manipulate God into doing something special for them. They already had something from their God. They already had something from the Creator God that the people and the other religions around them did not have. And what that was was a contract. They had a covenant, we might call it, a relational contract between themselves and their God. And God had already promised them some things through one of their prophets named Moses that, hey, I'm always going to be your God and you're always going to be my people. I'm going to enter into that relationship with you. And there were no sacrifices that were given as kind of terms and conditions to remain within that covenant. And that came, you know, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, there was those Ten Commandments and another 600, 603 about that kind of came down and were written on tablets of stone and all that kind of good stuff. And if you go back into the old part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you'll see around Deuteronomy chapter 28, that's when God said, hey, you're already my people. You don't need to bribe me, but here is a written law. Here is a written code, some terms and conditions of how I want you to behave within the land that I give you to behave in. So their contract and their relationship with the Creator God was tied to them being His people, but it was tied to them being within the land that God had designated for His people. And so God told him, look, if you will follow these rules and be my people in this land, then you'll always be my people. But if you misbehave, I'm still going to call you my people, but I'm going to kick you out of the land. Now, parents, you already get this, right? This is a what I just explained is essentially what? Time out. That's time out. It's exactly what time out is. Your kid misbehaves, Right? You're still going to be my son. You're still going to be my daughter. But you need to go over there and sit and think about your consequences, young man. 
right? No? Nobody? Else? I got beat when I was a kid, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm in unfamiliar territory. Y'all have to tell me if I'm right on this timeout thing. I've never had the fortune of experiencing timeout. I always experienced dad's black leather belt that had two rolls of holes, and when he would swing it at my backside, it would whistle, you know, just, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Mom had a thin red leather belt, and I think mom used to whistle when she, (laughs) that one wasn't the belt, that was my mom, you know, she just loved, no, I'm just kidding, my parents weren't abusive, I don't want to get that in your mind, but God was telling them, look, I'll always love you, you don't need to bribe me to gain my favor, I will, you know, love you forever, I will always call you my people, but if you misbehave and you break the rules, then I will flat out put you in time out. And so they had this contract, again, that we might call the law. And it was remarkable, really. It was way ahead of its time. And there have been people that are critical of it. But it was never meant to be a permanent part of humanity's relationship with God. It was a covenant and a contract between God and the nation of Israel. It was a step on the path to what God was ultimately leading all of humanity to. But it was advanced, And it was unique, and and anybody critical really doesn't understand the world as it was then, the world that surrounded the people of Israel and what was going on. It was a brutal and violent and twisted world, and the law kind of settled those issues. It taught Jewish people how how they were supposed to treat each other. It taught Jewish people how they were supposed to treat foreigners how they were supposed to treat servants and, and it forbid human sacrifice and how they were supposed to treat the poor and how they were supposed to treat the disabled. And, and in other societies and other cultures, like especially during those times, if you were disabled or if you were, you know, a lot of times just even a woman, like, sorry, ladies, that's the way it was back then, right? You were kind of on the outskirts. You were on the outs, outskirts and edges of favor. You did not enjoy all of the benefits that maybe men did within those societies or people who were not or people who were without disabilities. But these relationship laws that God gave to the nation of Israel set them apart from the other nations and tribes around them. And nobody else treated people like the Jewish people. Nobody else had a system of social welfare and care for the sick and the elderly like the nation of Israel. And it set them apart for those reasons and others and other reasons. And because of how it corrected their perspective on this idea that we're talking about over the next few weeks of worship. Because there, here was something really, really interesting about Israel's God and his giving them a system of worship. It turned out that the Jewish God was a lot more concerned with obedience than he was with sacrifice. This is really important. The Jewish God was a lot more concerned with obedience to his law, to his contract, than he was with the sacrifices that Israel would try and give to him as, a, as part of their worship. The surrounding nations, they would give sacrifices to worship their gods, to get the gods' attention and favor. But the pagan religions around them, the non-Jewish systems of worship around them, they would ask for, for offerings and they would ask for sacrifices, but they didn't care how you treated your wife. Those other religious systems didn't care how you treated your neighbor or how you would treat foreigners or how you would treat kids or slaves or the poor or the disabled. It was all about bribing the holy man to influence favor with those gods. But the Jewish God was more concerned with how you obeyed the terms and conditions that taught you how to interact with all of the people around you. And it's like the Jewish God was saying, I'm the Jewish creator God. I am Yahweh, the one who made everything. I created cows. Why do I want a dead one? I created sheep. 
What am I going to do with a dead one? It's like, yes, there's a system where you can honor me and recognize me, and we're going to talk into, we're going to talk about what, what the purpose of those was. But it's like God said, I just want you to obey this more than I want you to kill a bunch of things as some kind of religious showing of how much you supposedly love me. And we even know through one of the ancient Jewish kings, his name was Solomon. He wrote in Proverbs 21 and verse 3, he said, to do what is right and just... There's that idea of justice or interactions with other people, right? To do what is right and to do what is just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And God, it's like God was trying to teach them and say to them, look, you can practice sacrifices and offer sacrifices all day long. I'm not impressed. Just obey the laws that I am giving you to govern your relationships. And this was strange and it was unique, And it even, as we see through their history, it was even hard for the Jewish people to accept. But, you know, like they were thinking, well, everyone else is worshiping the other way. Why don't we worship the other way? And God told them, well, if all of your other friends were jumping off a cliff, would you go jump off cliff? Nobody, that's my mom again. She's, her voice is in there. It's just in my head. But Israel's sacrificial system wasn't designed as a way of bribing their God. It was designed... For this concept, and it's a big religious word here, of atonement. Atonement. What in the world does the word atonement mean? Well, you can kind of see if you break down the word in there like I did. At one meant. It means to take two parties who are separate and put them at one. To bring them back together. To somehow make peace between the two. It's like when your kids come back from time out and they have to say, Sorry. Or they have to give the toy back, or they have to clean the room, or whatever the thing is. They are doing the action that is bringing the two parties back together. It is an act of atonement, right? There's an action of atonement. And so God is saying, look, I don't want your sacrifices as any kind of bribe to me. I just want you to obey those laws. But I know you're not going to follow them perfectly, and so I have provided a system of you being able to come back into right relationship with me. Atonement, the system of atonement, their offering of sacrifices was all about at-one-ment with God. And the Hebrew word kind of meant to cover. So yes, you're going to fail, and yes, you're going to fall. But what I'm going to give you is a way to cover up what you have done. Atonement was something like covering up their sins so that wrongs were no longer visible in the relationship. God would no longer look at the sins that they had committed. And, and, and this is Jared's kind of broken definition of this. This probably wouldn't pass muster in seminary, but hopefully it kind of helps you get the idea that atonement is an idea of covering up something guilty with something innocent in order to bring peace to that relationship or restore that relationship. So you have done wrong, and you are guilty, so take something innocent and use it as a covering over your guilt so that when I look at you, that guilt is no longer between us, and now we can talk together again in peace. But the thing is still there. It's just covered up. You see that? You get that? Say yes. Okay, everybody said yes. So the Jewish system of worship was not built around bribing their God. It was built around reconciling God 
and his people. It was, a built, it was built around allowing the people to remain in relationship with their God, even though they were imperfect people. And he knew that they would need that kind of covering over their wrongs. So that was a system so that their relationship could be put right. I will no longer see the guilt of you treating each other wrong. So here is a system of covering up that guilt so that we can remain in relationship. And so year after year, And day after day within those years, the Jewish people would make costly sacrifices of different types of animals. And and depending on how bad your sin was, you had to bring bigger and bigger animals. You know, so you you see Bob, you know, you're walking up to the altar with your pigeon, right? And Bob's walking up next to you and he's got like a full-on bull. You know, Bob's been a bad boy, right? So you had to bring all of this and bring grains and all all of it had to be brought to the Jewish temple to acknowledge Hey, I haven't treated someone right. I've broken the rules, and and I need to have my guilt covered with innocence. And then, on top of that, here's the other beautiful thing about the Jewish law. They had to then go and make restitution with the person that they had sinned against. And the peoples and the tribes and the pagan religious systems around them looked at them, and they scratched their heads and, and said, man, that's not how you worship. But the Jewish God had given them something different. And then once a year, something really special would happen. All of the Jewish people from all over the country and all over their nation, and maybe at some points from all over their world, would gather into the city of Jerusalem, would crowd around the Holy Mount and, and where the temple was, and, and they'd try and get as close as they could. And there was only one temple. It wasn't like they had you know, one church there, and then there was a bunch of other church buildings all around. They had one temple, one temple in Jerusalem, the Holy Mount, and everybody would gather around. It was the place where heaven and earth kind of overlapped and interlocked, and, and they would celebrate nationally the Day of Atonement. And they would have this festival going on that would bring in so many elements and have so many moving parts. And, and the nation of Israel would actually repent not just of their personal sins, they would repent of their national sins. They would offer sacrifices, sacrifices as atonement for their national sins, right? And, and part of the festival, the, the high priest would actually take this goat. They would bring this goat forward, and the high priest in this very special moment would take his hands and place it on the head of this goat. And it was symbolic of him transferring the sins of the whole nation onto this goat, and then they would take that goat and lead it out through, through the middle of all the people and down the steps of the Holy Mount and out through all the villages and outside the city walls and lead that goat. Anybody ever heard of a scapegoat before? This is what that was about. They would lead that goat out into the wilderness, and there in the wilderness, they would abandon that goat. And it was symbolic that God had picked up and carried away the sins of the nation, and those sins were now gone from them, no longer attached to them, no longer part of them. And we are now sinless as a nation. We are now sinless as God's people for one year. For one year. We're sinless. Sound like anybody else's experience. No, don't raise your hand. We're sinless for one year. But the following year, they would repeat the whole thing again and again and again for year after year after year. And here's the thing about ancient Jewish system, the ancient Jewish system of worship. It was a temporary fix for a problem that needed a permanent solution. And it pointed ahead to something that God would one day write into the human story, that God would one day write into the story of redemption. It was a shadow and a hint of the ultimately perfect solution that God himself one day would bring to the people. 
And with pagan worship surrounding his people and worship designed that was, that was designed to get somebody's attention and, and blessing and the favor of the gods, the one creator God spoke in terms that the world would understand that, yes, there is a sacrifice that needs to be offered. Yes, there is a gap between who I am and who you are. But I don't need your bribes and I don't need your dead animals. What I desire above everything is obedience to my commands to you to deal with each other in love. But if you offend me, by breaking my rules, if you offend me by offending someone else, not only will you have to make atonement with me, you'll have to make restitution with your brothers and your sisters. But it's not forgiveness. It was just a covering. The sacrifices of bulls and goats could never equal human worth. And so it was just a temporary covering. But next year, come back and do it all again. Until, until... One afternoon, around the year 30 A.D., a Jewish preacher man comes into the area around Jerusalem out of the wilderness, and he spoke like a prophet, having this, this authority about religious things and about God, and, and he looked like a homeless man, and he was dressed wild, and he smelt fun, and he ate weird things, and, and his message was simple, that, hey, God has been promising to do a permanent thing for the people of the world, and that permanent thing not the temporary system of worship, not the temporary system of sacrifices, the permanent thing that he promised our people and our nation through our prophets, it is about to happen. And it's time for you to stop treating each other wrong and just going to church to put another covering, another Band-Aid, another fresh coat of paint over all of the wrong that you're doing. It's time for you to change deep down who you are. It is time for repentance. Because God is finally about to do the thing that God has been promising to do. And his name was John. But John was a common name. So John needed a nickname. There were a lot of people named John around that time. And so they called him John the Baptist because he had tried out the Methodist church and he had tried out the Catholic church. He had, no, I'm just kidding. If it, that's not what it was. He. They, <laughs> They called him John the Baptist because he would invite people into this new context, this new system of worship, this new relationship with God. And he would take people and dunk them in the water and baptize them. And the Jewish people had never seen this before. They'd never seen someone do this. They, they, they knew about like a system of washing. If you were a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, a non-Jew who wanted to become a Jew, you had to go through this ceremony and eat this special thing, and then you had to go and perform this, this ceremony of washing by yourself, but you would essentially baptize yourself. But John came on the scene and said, no, I'm going to be the one who does the dunking. And so if you're ready to join this permanent thing that God has promised one day will come, if you're ready to change who you are, and change how you treat other people, and join his new movement, and be a part of his new kingdom, then I am going to baptize you here in this water. This was an amazing thing, and everybody went out to see John. Tens of thousands of Jewish people, all the countryside went out to see John in the dead. Now, think about that, and we don't really get that because we had the whole separation of church and state. Their religion was tied into their state. Their religion was part of who they were, and so when they did this deeply religious people 
heard about John promising that God was finally going to do the thing he had been promising for thousands of years, they went to hear more about this message because they had been waiting for over 1,500 years for God to do the new thing, for God to show up on the scene, for God to be their rescuer king who would not only deliver them from the people around them, but who would finally deliver them from the weight of their guilt and their sin. And their contract with God had been around for 1,500 years, and it was stained, and it was ragged, and hadn't served them very well. And they kept abusing them, and then God would put them on time out, and then they'd say they were sorry, and God would restore them to the land, and then they'd abuse the law again, and God would put them on time out. They'd say they were sorry. They'd come back into the land. I just saved you guys from reading the whole Old Testament. You're welcome. That's the whole Old Testament in a nutshell right there. But John says, this is God's new thing that you have been waiting for. And tens of thousands of Jewish people from Judea and Jerusalem all came out to see John dunking people in the water. But the people, the regular people, the common people like you and me weren't the only ones to go see John. The religious people, the holy men of the day, the sacred men who served in the sacred building and read the sacred text, they also went to see John. And they asked him, are you this rescuer king that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? And John looked at them and he said, no, I'm not the Messiah, but get ready. And when he shows up, he's going to start this new thing. And I'm not even worthy to lace his sandals, but get ready. It's coming. And one time, another group of these special holy men came out to see John. And John saw them coming. And and, and boy, they were going to set John straight. But John saw them. And John gave them a look that would have withered them. And John raised his voice and pointed his finger, I think, and he told them, you brood of vipers. Mmm. Mmm. Somebody say, mmm. Yeah. Feels good to see self-righteous people kind of get put in their place. Can I get an amen? You're not sure if I should say that or not. Jesus, I don't know if I should say that in church, but yes, it does feel good, Lord. Forgive me. Amen. And John looked at these these men that he had just called snakes. And he said, who warned you to run away from God's coming wrath? You say you want to be a part of this thing. Show me fruit. Show me evidence that you've got a changed heart. Show me evidence that you want to treat people differently than you have been treating people all this time. Don't try and hijack this. Don't try and join yourself to this and and pretend like this was your idea all along. Don't try and do what Popeyes is trying to do to Chick-fil-A. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Oh, I should hear a better amen in the house. It's a trick of the devil. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Don't hop on their good reputation and take it for yourself. And then run out a chicken sandwich. Come on, what you going to do? Shameful. So he told them, it's actually in my notes. I'm very stirred up about this. It is. It's in my notes. But he told them, don't just say you're children of Abraham. In other words, don't just say you're Jewish and that gets you a free pass in. That's not what it's about this time. God had a covenant with the Jewish people in that land. That was that thing. This is a new thing. And he told them, God can make children of Abraham out of these stones that are laying around. There's a new standard now. There's a new badge of belonging now. And it has nothing to do with your race 
or your nationality. And when God had everybody stirred up just like he wanted, when God had the whole nation of Israel paying attention just like he wanted, when everybody was leaning in at ground zero and, and the whole territory was start to take no, starting to take notice of what was going on, one afternoon in one of the most dramatic scenes in history, John is baptizing people. And there's a crowd all around of thousands of people. And John, as he's dunking somebody in the water, and we're hoping that he had already pulled him out by the time he paused. But as John pulls him out, he stops everything and he tells everybody to be quiet. And John points up the valley just a little bit and he says, look, hey, all you Jewish people that have been waiting for God to rescue you, look, hey, everybody burdened down with guilt and with shame. I'm already preaching a little bit old style this morning. Is anybody with me? Hey, everybody burdened with your sin and wanting deliverance from all of your guilt. Look, look just up there. It's the Lamb of God. It's the Lamb, the animal, the animal of God, from God, belonging to God, the lamb that came out of God. And watch this. This is so, so beautiful. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Jewish people would have thought, wait, 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 John, John, John. You don't really mean takes away the sin. What you mean is who covers the sin. John, not who takes away the sin, the Lamb of God who hides the sins, but they're still there. You know, we get it. It's something innocent, providing covering for something guilty, right? That's the atonement formula. And John would say, no, that's the old thing. That's bulls and goats and pigeons and grains that aren't equal to human value. Just hiding the sins is the old thing. But God is doing a new thing. And this is the lamb that comes from God himself, who doesn't want to just hide everything that you were in all of your shame, in all of your past, but who wants to pick up and carry away, away from you, apart from you, divorced from your mind, ripped out of your heart, leaving you innocent and pure and clean, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. Not just of Jewish people, not just of Hebrew people, but who picks up and carries away, who takes away the sin of the whole world. Can you give him praise? Come on, let's pause right now. Can you give him thanksgiving? Come on, if you've ever repented and have God forgiven you of your sin. Come on, if you've ever repented and felt that guilt and that shame lift off of you. Come on, can you give him praise today for grace? Can you give him thanks today for mercy? John said, look, it's the permanent solution to our permanent problem of sin and failure. Look, it's the ultimate solution to our cycle of brokenness. Look, it's the promised help from God for our own pathetic condition, our condition where we can't even keep our own personal consciences clear. Look, look, the final sacrifice for sin. The final, think about that, the final sacrifice for sin. Everything that we have been promised, everything that we have been told to look for, everything that we have been hoping for is coming true in that one person. Look, look, behold 
I like the old King James version there. Behold the Lamb of God. And years later, in the early church, the writer of a document in our New Testament that we call Hebrews, we don't know who it was that wrote it, but he wrote it to Jewish Christians. They weren't called Jewish back then, they were called Hebrews, and he wrote it to the Hebrew people, to the converts from Judaism into Christianity, those who had been a part of the old contract between God and that nation, and now we're part of the new contract between God and the whole world. Here is what that writer had to say about the Jewish sacrificial system that was so important in itself, that needed to exist, that was a signpost to the new thing that God was going to do. People needed that signpost so they would have missed the significance of what Jesus came to do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, talking about that old contract, that old covenant. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never, it could never, by those same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it could never, somebody say never, Never make perfect those who draw near to worship. And then he says this in verse 3, but those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sin. And this is why God wanted obedience more than God wanted sacrifice. Because the sacrifice was just a reminder that you were broken, that you had messed up. That you had offended someone and hurt someone and taken something that didn't belong to you or said something that didn't need to be said or done something that had no reason or no meaning for being done. And he goes on in verse 4 and he says, but it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hide sins? Sure, for a year. Cover sins? Yeah, for a year. Tuck them up under something, put a fresh coat of paint on it? Yes, for a year. But take your sins away? Impossible. And your sins could never be taken away from those sinners until that afternoon when John pointed up the hill and said, Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all, once and forever removes our sin from us. And Jesus, Jesus replaced the entire sacrificial worship, worship system. Look, look, not just of Jewish people, but of the whole world, of the whole world. And the Jewish sacrificial system, there was nothing broken in it. It, was, it did exactly what it was designed to do, but it was designed to point to the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem, our sin and our failure and our brokenness that God one day would not just cover them up anymore, but that our sins are now forgiven and our sins are now taken away once and for all. But look, you've you got to see this. You've got to recognize this. This is one of the reasons you need to take Christianity seriously. This is one of the reasons you need to think through what Christianity actually says about you and your relationship with that one, that other, that something, that force, that power that's out there. And you may be here today and not really sure what you believe in, not really sure what you want to accept as your own thing, and you're trying to find your way, right? You have your own truth, and you have questions and things that you're wrestling with. You need to take Christianity seriously for this very reason. This is so huge. Nobody saw this coming. We know the story here 2,000 years later, and we, we still get surprised by this, some of us do. But our sins can now be forgiven, 
And our sins can now be taken away for this reason, because God offered his own sacrifice to win the attention and the affection of the human race. That's backwards. It's supposed to be us that finds the perfect sacrifice to offer to the God to win his attention and to win his favor. But that never worked for anybody. And so when the time was fully come, when God had orchestrated all of human events to bring that time to its fruition, to set the stage, God sent his lamb, sent his son into the world, and God offered his own sacrifice. And when Jesus Christ was high and lifted up on the cross, when we see him there dying and offering himself for our sins, it does something to us. It's why we sing. It's why we clap. It's why we can't help lifting our hands and waving them. It's why some of us cry sometimes. Because he has gotten my attention. He has won my affection. He has won my adoration and my admiration. Come on, somebody, can you clap your hands a little bit louder? Come on, somebody, can you lift your voice a little bit louder and give him worship? Instead of God demanding something from us, instead of God requiring a perfect sacrifice from us, he would offer his son, his own sinless perfection for us. And he offers freedom from guilt and shame for us, but not just freedom from the past. He offers the power and the grace to walk into a new future. He offers peace for troubled minds, but not just some light, fluffy, empty, empty sentiment, but the hard-fought peace that comes from suffering, from going through some things and coming out the other side into new and living hope and new life. He offers that to you. It's a hope that's alive because it was dead and it was raised from the dead and it's alive forever. It's not an empty hope. It's not a dead hope. He gives us something more. He offers redemption, meaning for our pain, meaning for our suffering, reason for all of the times that we have been hurt. And ultimately, he offers us reconciliation with the Heavenly Father, the broken and and fractured and sinful us could somehow find a wholeness to ourselves, could somehow all of our pieces could be put back together and made brand new so that we and a beautiful and perfect and loving Heavenly Father could somehow be put back together in relationship that you could be called the Son of God and you could be called the daughter of God. And in one afternoon, when Jesus hung there on the cross, and when he breathed his last breath, and when he said, it is finished, And he hung his head, and Jesus died, offering himself as a sacrifice for us. Worship changed forever. Worship changed forever. Worship would no longer be an act done to appease a god or the gods. Worship would no longer be done to atone for our sins and need to be redone every single year. But now as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, we worship to remember. We worship to remember what we have been given. We worship to remember all of the things from which we have been for 
given. We worship to remember his mercy that found us. We worship to remember the grace that called to our heart, something that just seemed too good to be true. But when we stepped forward and when we came to that moment of surrender and said, somehow, God, if it really is true that you want to forgive, oh, I wish somebody in here had a testimony this morning. When we came to that moment where we could finally say, God, if it really is true that you can take away my guilt and my shame, would you forgive me and take away my guilt and my shame now? Anybody remember that day? Anybody remember that prayer? I don't know what words you said, but do you remember the feeling? Suddenly it felt like your arms were weightless. Suddenly it felt like your soul was light again. And you realized when you got up from that place that you got up and you left different because in that moment your sins had been taken away. In our past no longer condemns us. Guilt and shame have been kicked in the teeth. And we don't worship to try and call God down. We worship because we remember that God came down to offer the perfect sacrifice and restore us to himself. Christians worship to remember and Christians worship to celebrate. It's why we celebrate at church. It's why I look around you right now. Everybody that you look at right now is going to have a smile on their face. Try it. Look. Look at that. I'm a prophet. I knew it. Give an offering. I'll get you a new car. No, I'm just kidding. It's not true. It's not true. I am not Oprah, y'all. I'm just not. But worship is extremely emotional. Worship involves the heart and the spirit. When we begin to remember his grace and his mercy and his, his kindness, worship is happy. Worship is emotional and moving and it's stirring and it's why we sing and it's why we clap. It's why we wave our hands in the air and we wave them like... Y'all miss it. It's why we wave our hands in the air and we wave them like we just... Three of y'all got rhythm. The rest of y'all... Come on, somebody... It's why people write lyrics and music to say over and over and in new and interesting ways what the church has been celebrating for 2,000 years. And every single Sunday that we get together, every time that we come together as the body of Christ, we remember and we celebrate that we have been restored. We have been forgiven. We have been set free from who we used to be. And we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything that Jesus said is true. And what Jesus said is, I love you and I forgive you and I'm going to offer myself for you and I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to give you a new perspective, a new mind and a new heart. All things have become new. And when you get something new, You celebrate, celebrate, celebrate in all that we have experienced and all that we enjoy has been validated. And so we remember and so we celebrate. But Christian worship doesn't even end when this service ends. Christian worship does not end when the music stops. Christian worship does not end when the gathering is over. But in Christian worship, all of our life, our day-to-day life, All of our relationships and actions and reactions and behaviors, all of them are now lived in the light of what has shown into us from His 
life. And Paul, who entered, he was an early Christian leader who entered the scene as one of those holy men. Paul, who entered the scene, steps onto the pages of history as someone who was manipulating ancient texts to allow him to mistreat and even at some point have Christians executed until Jesus literally knocked him off his high horse, got Paul's attention, and told him about this new thing that God had done through Jesus Christ. And Paul began to see the whole idea of worship and sin and atonement differently. Paul wrote to some Christians in Rome in chapter 12 and verse 1, and he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I'm urging you, in view of God's mercy, what's that? It's remembering, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your mouth, your mind, your heart, your eyes, your ears, your feet, your hands, your arms, everything that you are, to offer your bodies, notice this, notice this, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And ever since the cross, and ever since our sins were taken care of once and for all, and ever since the perfect and the ultimate sacrifice came down into our brokenness, and offered himself not just as a covering, covering, but as the one that would pick up and carry away our sin, and pick up and carry away our guilt, and pick up and take away all of those things that just so weigh us down, so make us doubt our worth and our value, make us wonder if God could ever really, really love us because of all the things that we have done. Mm, gee, I feel God in this moment. Come on, all over the room, could you pause? Again, whatever you're comfortable doing, could you bow your head, maybe close your eyes right now? God, speak to us in this moment. Speak to us in this moment, Jesus. I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Because ever since the cross, this, this is your true and your proper worship. And this is how Christians worship. We gather to remember. We gather and we celebrate together. But then in light of God's sacrifice for us, our living sacrifice is the logical, it's the reasonable thing that we return back to Him as worship. And so Christian worship is about remembering. Christian worship is about celebrating. But Christian worship ultimately is about surrendering ourselves back to Him. It's the only thing that we can do. It's the only logical thing for us to do. He offered himself for us. Why would we not offer ourselves back for him? He died for us. Why would we not tell him and ask him for the help to live for him? And we live our lives, our relationships, our ways and our days, all of it as worship for the sacrifice that he has given to us. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.